Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. So the PM got a bit of sparring practice ahead of the debate yesterday, eh? Yeah. Yeah, the Mike Hoskin thing. Did you hear it? It was early yesterday on News Talk ZB. He was pressing her on Australia's COVID response versus ours and how they have a GDP drop of seven versus our 12. And oh, just have a listen. You're being too linear. It's not a matter of a perfect model or a non-perfect model. It's a matter of nuance and subtlety. And nuance and subtlety has given them a GDP reading of minus seven versus minus 12. Mike, if you're saying you're now someone of nuance and subtlety, bless. <laughs> bless. How can such a nice word be so mean? No my hari mai ki tick tick stuff's 2020 election podcast. Mo te wenere, mahuru rua te kaumatoru. Ko Adam Dudding tene. Ko Eugene Bingham tene. Tena koutou katoa. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about this election New Zealand is embarking on. And then we slow things down to focus on one particular korero. There are 24 days until the election. 24 days. Thanks for the countdown, Jimmy Lee. 24 days. It feels like this campaign's been going on for about a year, but we're actually only just getting to the bit where it starts to get exciting. And you know you're in the final stretch when the leader debates begin. Yeah, round one on TVNZ last night. News Hub's debate and the press stuff one and the TVNZ rematch are all coming up. We'll have a chat with Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass about last night's rumble soon. But things were already getting lively for me over the weekend. I mean, there was a party campaign launch. I don't know, is... Lively really the right word for National's campaign launch? I think COVID has kind of sucked the life out of things. It was a virtual launch based out of Avalon Studio with Maggie Barry hosting a bunch of live hookups from around the country. So that's all good. But because of COVID, there was only a tiny socially distanced studio audience and they did their best to cheer mightily at each line of Judith Collins' speech. But it's really not the same without a heaving, sweating, jostly crowd of political obsessives and fans. Yeah, I saw Luke wrote a piece saying the vibe was like an old telethon or a cross between an infomercial and Palmer's Garden Show. There were a lot of pot plants on stage, I've got to say. Okay, so that was kind of low-key, but then there was Selfie-gate. What? You know, Selfie-gate. You've always got to have something gate in a campaign. It's tradition. So remember there was a photo, then some tweets, and then we talked about it on Saturday. And finally on Monday, Jacinda Ardern acknowledged, if not quite apologised, for taking a close-quarters selfie with some folk at Massey University when they probably should have been more socially distanced. You know something else that's becoming traditional? A fiscal hole. Last campaign, it was the $11 billion fiscal hole that National Stephen Joyce claimed was in the Labour books. And this time around, it was Labour's Grant Robertson gleefully pointing out the $4 billion error in National's Paul Goldsmith's spreadsheets. Numbers, eh? Yeah, later on the show, we talk numbers with ANZ Chief Economist Sharon Zollner to see if we can get our heads around just how big a hole the economy is in and whether, in the face of a global pandemic, there's actually much that politicians can offer to make a meaningful difference. But first, Eugene, what's been happening? As you hear ad nauseum, it's the COVID election. So of course there are COVID policies. National yesterday promised changes to border and quarantine facilities. Under the plan, travellers from low-risk countries would be able to skip the full 14-day managed isolation process. And National would allow private providers to offer isolation services, the privatisation of isolation. New Zealand first has been splashing the cash round in Northland, you know, the seat where they're hoping Shane Jones can snatch an unlikely victory from the current MP, Nationals Matt King. Jones and his leader, Winston Peters, announced $30 million worth of provincial growth fund investments yesterday, promising the creation of 480 jobs. And yep, 
there was the debate, the first of the leader head-to-head square-offs, this one on TVNZ, hosted by John Campbell. We were watching, Stuff Political Editor Luke Malpass was watching, so let's give him a call. Kia ora, Luke. Kia ora, guys. How are you going? Pretty good. Well, what'd you make of that show? Oh, I thought it was a, it's a pretty boring debate, to be completely honest. I thought that the, the Prime Minister looked a bit off, I thought, tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, often her her calling card is is being authentic and being able to emote, and I thought that she was quite um, quite circumspect tonight. And partly, I wonder whether that was a whether that was a deliberate thing to try and um, really draw a contrast between herself as the considered Prime Minister and Judith Collins, who was hectoring, scoffing, raising eyebrows, and interjecting. She was certainly flat, wasn't she? It just there didn't seem to be any energy from her. Even well, I guess until that last statement, really, was the only time she sort of seemed to get any energy about it. Yeah, I thought I thought she was on, I thought she was on her best um, when she started talking about climate change. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of an exchange, a bit of an exchange about farmers and Judith Collins was sort of saying, you know, Labor's doing down farmers, and then she sort of turned that around and saying, look. Going into going into climate change was an area she knows very well. She's across the details of. She's passionate about and how important it was going to be for New Zealand's comparative advantage. But to be honest, apart from that, she really just um, hewed back to a lot of the talking points. And I think it was, it looked to me like it was a clear strategic play, um, trying to you know, I mean, that's been a cautious campaign, and. Um, and she was just trying to rise above it all, but I just, just, just think it didn't didn't quite work last uh, tonight. Mm, sure, I thought it started a little bit dull, but then it sort of got a bit spikier later on. But look, I've I've not really watched one of these debates carefully from start to finish while taking notes. So, but here's what it sounded like to me: it was basically Miss Ardern, Border Control Agency, thirty-one billion dollars, thirty million dollars, bing, pumped hydro. My husband is some on minimum wage, small business owners, Miss Ardern, capital gains, child poverty, bing. We have a plan. No, we have a plan. Bing. Did I miss anything? Well, if I may, Adam, if I may, if I may. Oh, yeah, Dern did say that a lot, didn't she? She said it a lot. Yeah, she really did. So what did you make of the debate, Eugene? Well, it seemed like a parliamentary debate by the chair. I don't know if you agree, Luke. It sort of seemed they were talking via Campbell a lot and hardly ever engaging with each other. Certainly not Ardern. I think Collins was trying to, wasn't she? Um, Collins was sort of flippant and almost jokey with lines like, oh, this is fun. Can we do it again? And then that whole weird Miss Ardern thing. He wasn't Campbell. He was. He was. He wasn't Mr. Campbell. Sorry, he was John. But she, Judith Collins, just kept on referring to her as Miss Ardoon. It was obviously that was a strategy as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously she doesn't want to call her prime minister. No. Um. No. You know, to remind people that that she is the prime minister. Yeah. And um. And look, I, mean, I think just Judith Collins tonight didn't really have much to lose. Mm. And you know, historically, first debates are often won by challenges because it's the first time you get the the billing with the with the, with the top star. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're on the stage together and it's not parliament and you've got to sort of survive by your wits. So quite often it's an expectations game. And, and you know, I mean, I, I tend to think that um, that uh, Judith Collins won't have done herself any harm tonight. Mm. I don't think that – I don't think that she probably um, – uh, you know, won any particular voters across, but I mean, at the moment, it's a bit of a, um, a damage mitigation campaign for the Nats mm. at the moment. So, and of course, they had those they had those very negative uh, poll figures to deal with at the outset as well, which were thrown at her by Campbell, what an hour or two after she had heard about them. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. Which had Labour at forty-eight percent, which um, would be enough to govern in its own right. Um, National, I think, was on thirty-one. 
uh, and Dove gone down as well, and then the Greens on six act on six, so a four party a four party parliament. And you know, like, I mean, she's got nothing to lose. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And I think and I think we saw that tonight. And 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 her classic line that she seemed to use quite a bit was, "Oh, well, that's total nonsense. You know, that's mm. complete nonsense. Mm. Um, you know, here's where here's here's how it really is." Yeah. And. Um, and uh, and I thought that, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be too critical because I have to uh, moderate a debate myself in a couple of weeks. But I thought that uh, John Campbell uh, probably inserted himself into the debate too much. Yeah, he I, featured quite a lot, didn't he? Mm. But I would much prefer to hear from, to have heard more from them. Yeah, let's whip through a few quick sort of rankings or categories. What about? Did you have a best zinger or comeback? Oh, uh, just as we were going to an ad break. Um, Judith Collins um, said, said something like, "Oh well, it's just like cannabis. You won't tell us what you think oh, about yeah. that either." Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it just sort of and it was just sort of left there as we went to the ad break. Uh, she she did have that line about um, about the horticultural workers. We'll give them the same treatment Miss Ardoon has given to the Australian rugby team, which obviously was a prepared line. Um, yes. And then that and then that give it back line about uh, give it back then about the tax cut, uh, which went a little bit flat. But she's obviously trying yeah. to get a few jabs in there. Best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were there any policy bombshells? No. Yeah. Well, the biggest one to me was John Campbell trying to resurrect the uh, capital gains tax debate. Tax debate. Well, pretty much. Uh, that was um, that was rather bizarre. Seeing as yeah. no one, no, no one, one was biting on it. it to, yeah. No, well, no, neither of those two are taking it to an election. So exactly. Bit of yeah. a moot point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, any personal revelations you thought? Judith's line about um, you know my husband's someone. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the new connection to the dairy farmer. She seemed to. Um, yeah. The new, yeah. The connection to the dairy farmer. Yep. I, I think to counter some of the um, jabs we've put at, at uh, John Campbell, I think we should come up with a new category: best Campbellisms. And I've I've got a couple of contenders. I wouldn't mind a gin just quietly, which I thought was quite good. And um, he, he said at one point, I'm getting the wind up. I've got to go to an ad. I blame the shareholder for that. I like that one. Yeah. It is tough doing those things, isn't it? As you'll know, when you run the, the press stuff debate, is it October 6th, Luke? It is. It is. I will find out. So I don't want to be, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be very critical of it. What else, mm. Adam? I was quite intrigued by, um, we were saying that the, the the verbal debating wasn't thrilling, but there's some kind of interesting non-verbal stuff going on. Judith Collins has proved to be very good at scowling and lifting her eyebrows when Ardern is talking, and Ardern was really good at looking baffled and slightly concerned and maybe a little sad when Judith Collins talked. Other category, what did you make of the aesthetics of it all, Eugene? Well, the set was sort of mauve and pastel. The no audience being there made it quite flat as well, didn't it? Didn't it? And can't help that it's COVID. Yeah, yeah. The funky podia, the big logo on the floor was okay, but I thought they should have had two ticks like we do. They should have. Hey, and I've just just in closing, I did a close analysis of the clothing. Um, in case you weren't watching, the prime minister wore a purple jacket. The leader of the opposition wore a dark jacket, and John Campbell wore a dark jacket. Too. Unlike the debaters, John Campbell made an effort to accessorise with a lovely big pen and a very lovely new clipboard. Um, sorry, this is why I'm not a fashion writer. Hey, thanks, Luke. You've probably got some writing to do for for the morning's papers and so on and and the and stuff.co.nz tonight. So we'll better let you go. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Good stuff. On with the show. Former US President Pil Pil Clinton. I like that. <laughs> 
Bill Clinton's 1992 election campaign famously coined the slogan, It's the Economy, Stupid. It was one of three catchphrases the campaign used to keep staff and volunteers on track, kind of like a reminder to what mattered most to people. Political veterans talk about hip pocket politics too, try and say that fast, that parties win or lose on how people are going to be hit in the back pocket. Economics and politics, they always go together. But this election, the economy is just a freaking mess. It's hard to make sense of it. And last week, because of the coming election, New Zealand got a fresh look at all the economic indicators in the form of a pre-election economic and fiscal update. That's P-R-E-F-U. So, pre You know, I don't want to get all four S's versus three S's, but there's sort of an extra E in there. So it should be pre it's true. Or in honour of the recent Māori Language Week, I guess we could put a Macron on the E, pre-fu. Anyway, as Thomas Coughlin explained to us many months ago, there are quite a few different types of e-fu. There's a half-yearly one, he-fu, and also one that comes at budget time, bi-fu. So that's he-fu, bi-fu, pre-fu. I think the Wiggles did a song about it once. I think I know that one. Hefu, briefu, briefu, briefu. Hefu, briefu, briefu. Hefu, briefu, briefu. A prefu. A hifu, a oh, that's, bifu, that's, that's, a prefu. That, that, that's, that, that's enough. Anyway, the oh, point is, there are quite a few acronyms it. and lots of numbers, and some of them seem really big. I mean, I still get mildly upset when I encounter a takeaway coffee that busts the $5.50 barrier, and yet newsreaders this week have been casually talking about $300 billion here, a mislaid $4 billion there. The figures are so big, they start to lose meaning. So we decided to ring up someone who knows all about these numbers and quite possibly knows all the lyrics to Hifu Bifu Prefu as well. Sharon Zolner, Chief Economist, ANZ New Zealand. Yeah, Sharon used to work at the Reserve Bank in macroeconomics, and she's also spent time in Norway at the central bank there. And in 2012, she even came up with an entirely new way of measuring New Zealand's economy, the trichometer. We'll get her to explain it, but basically it's a novel way to measure how well the economy is rolling. I see what you did there. Anyway, here's the interview. Hi, Sharon. Hello. So as of last week, we have a better picture of the numbers that describe the state of New Zealand's economy. And those numbers are huge and sort of overwhelming. But we're hoping you can step us through them to give us an understanding. We wondered, though, if we could start with what's the economic number that you look at first? So I guess your personal favourite. As economists, we really like data that tells us where the economy is going in advance. So in that regard, I can't really go past our own trachometer, traffic volumes. They give you a a really good steer on on where things are going, even up to six months down the track. But in terms of the numbers that really matter for the person on the street, I would say it's hard to go past the labour market, the unemployment rate. Unfortunately, that's a lagging indicator. So it really does tell you where it's where the economy has been, but it's the number that really matters for people's well-being. So I'd have to say that's one of the most important numbers we have. You mentioned the trachometer, um, and we were going to talk about that, but we might as well talk about it now. So can you just describe to us what it is and and how's it going at the moment? Well, basically, there's a couple of types of traffic, light traffic and heavy traffic. So light traffic is cars and vans, uh, and heavy traffic is basically mostly trucks, but also a, a few buses. So when you look at it, that data, the, the truck traffic tends to tell you where the economy is right now. Uh, so, And that's not surprising, I suppose, in an agricultural economy. Mm. It reflects agricultural production. It reflects retail sales as well as shops are frantically restocking or not. Uh, but the light traffic is actually really interesting because that's a really good real-time measure of population growth, actually. Now, you might think that would be something we have a good measure of, but actually it's not. So uh, it actually, therefore, gives you a really good lead on where the economy 
is is going in a momentum sense, um, whether it's going up, down, or sideways. And obviously, it doesn't see things coming like global financial crises and COVID outbreaks, but uh-huh. it gives you a good sense of of the momentum, uh, right. whether it's up or down. Um, and it's mostly recovered, actually. Uh, a few wobbles, obviously, in lockdown, to say the least. Uh, but it bounced back pretty quickly, as of course we eliminated COVID and thought we were done with it and had three months of, of, of relative normality. Where do you get your numbers for your trichometer? Do you like look out the window and count vehicles or, or what? <laughs> Unfortunately, Waka Kotahi, the New Zealand Transport Agency, uh, does that for us. Right, uh, right. What I did is go through and figure out which roads are the most correlated with the economy rather than just taking the, the average across the whole lot. Okay. So big picture, when you set up those numbers that came out last week, the pre-fu and the release of the GDP, figures and things, and and you took in the confirmation that we were in a recession. Can you kind of quantify for us how big a hole are we in and and are you worried about it? Well, it's a a very big hole. Uh, A 12.2% fall in GDP in a three-month period is unheard of. Uh, But hey, we're going to have something like a 10% bounce in the economy in the next three months. We're going to have the best quarter we've ever had. Uh, But of course, context is everything. Mm. It's extreme volatility. But you can't really take it at face value because it doesn't reflect people's economic choices. It reflects the government's COVID strategy. Um, and so it's a, it's a lot of noise. It was a lot of lost activity, a lot of balance sheet damage, but the government took most of that on the chin, as indeed they should. They've got the, the deepest pockets and a very strong starting position for their balance sheet. So um, there were a lot of businesses who ended up actually a little bit embarrassed about the money, amount of money they've made in the last few months. Of course, there are other firms that are, are really in deep trouble. But on the whole, I think it's fair to say that the economy bounced out of that lockdown more rapidly than anyone anticipated. Mm. But there were real question marks around how, how sustainable that is because there was a massive, massive fiscal stimulus that helped us along. Some of the figures we've been looking at are the GDP. So, I mean, just a really basic question before we move on. Remind us, what is GDP? So that's gross domestic product. It's actually an accounting idea, I suppose, and it's actually relatively arbitrary. And and some people have uh, quite different ideas about how an economy should be measured. But the main advantage of, of the GDP statistics is that they are measured consistently between countries. So we're all talking the same language, as right. it were. Some, and the, those rules about how to count it get tweaked occasionally. But those, that methodology was never designed for a lockdown situation. Uh, so it was actually kind of farcical and amusing that the number came out so close to what the market was expecting because um, really it could have come out as, as anything because it's actually really difficult when things ha- are so bizarre to put a number on it. It was such a strange period. Mm. So the prefu involved a bunch of predictions, and we so back in May the Treasury projected that the economy would be worth by 2024 374 billion, and then now they've rerun the numbers and they've come up with a figure for 2024 of 364 billion. So that's 10 billion dollars smaller. How does that work? What's what's changed to slice 10 billion dollars off a projection for you know a few years in the future? Well, the changes that the Treasury made to their economic projections actually brought them more into line with ours. Um, And I think it's just uh, perhaps a function of the fact that back in May, it was an insane scramble as they, you know, the COVID had only just happened, the lockdown had just happened, and they were trying to put together a budget and trying to put together forecasts. And so 
they turned out to be a little bit too negative about the impact of the lockdown and the speed of the likely bounce back. But also they were a bit optimistic about some of the longer term assumptions. For example, the fact that unemployment's going to rise quite high and business investment's going to be quite low. That means that actually how fast the economy can reasonably expect to grow a few years from now is still going to be actually quite hindered mm. uh, by the fact that we'll have you know lower productivity growth and people who are a little bit lost because they've had to change career or you know that that sort of thing slows down your economy for quite a while you don't sort of just bounce back to the old path of where you were going to be and with the border closed for an unknown amount of time the economy does actually need to evolve quite a bit and and that means quite a persistent hit to growth so there wasn't a lot of new negative news that made them less optimistic about the medium term it was more that they just had time to to really think about it and run their models and think about the the longer term implications of of what's a very, very unusual shock for the New Zealand economy. Which makes me wonder, how good are the Treasury? I mean, obviously the Prefu and Bifu and Hifu are terribly important because they're the things that uh, the people who are in government look at when they're making their decisions. But uh, how good are the Treasury at this stuff? Are there other people out there with different spreadsheets who are coming up with different projections? Oh, their latest forecasts are brilliant because they're very similar to ours. <laughs> but, um, more seriously, um, yeah, economic forecasts, uh, they, they are a story and they are really useful for bringing lots of threads together and telling a coherent story, but they will be wrong. Everybody's macroeconomic forecasts will be wrong uh, because an economy is an incredibly complicated thing and unexpected things keep happening. I mean, COVID was an extreme example. Uh, but it's also changing all the time. So all your models of how the economy works will be different. They are they uh, they provide a very useful structure and discipline on how you think about things and make sure you don't just ignore things that don't fit your story. They force you to think hard about why this time is different. But this time is always slightly different from last time. And therefore, everyone's forecasts will be wrong in some sense. So I haven't done the, the analysis of forecast errors recently. I'm, I'm sure you could make Treasury look terrible. I'm sure you could make us look terrible. Um, maybe there's wisdom of the crowds. Maybe you should just take everybody's forecasts and average them. Mm. So when you are working on forecasting, how much is sort of hard data and how much is sort of something, you know, a bit more the vibe almost? Both. Uh, in an event like this, which is so unprecedented, there's probably more gut feel than usual. Right. Um, but but it's always the case. I mean, take take the housing market, for example. You know, the huge negative shock, massive drop in GDP. Uh, you'd think the housing market would be struggling a bit because everyone would be very, very nervous about spending a lot of money at the moment. But no. <laughs> so huh. basically you've got the plunging interest rates, which are driving it up. You've got the Reserve Bank easing the mortgage lending restrictions, which are driving it up. You've got a big rise in unemployment, but it's masked by the wage subsidy, so it hasn't really happened yet. And even those who have lost their jobs, there's the mortgage deferment scheme. So then no one's really being put in a position of having to sell their house yet. So, And then you've got net migration has gone to practically zero, but that takes actually a few months for anybody to notice that that's happened. So you've got all these massive moving parts and you know, as it turns out, the falling interest rates seem to just be dominating everything at the moment. But that that's a constant tug of war. And the other team has got, had a slow start. But we do expect a few wobbles in the housing market before we're done because we've taken a real income hit 
Mm. as a country. Our ability to pay ludicrous prices for houses has actually taken a hit. That must count for something. So you make a good case that this stuff's kind of difficult, but but famously, National's Paul Goldsmith made a $4 billion slip in his economic projections. So tell me, as someone who presumably does a lot of spreadsheets, have you ever mislaid $4 billion in your calculations? <laughs> I'm sure our GDP forecast has been out by $4 billion at some point if you go out far enough. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> the big numbers, but this is a, what, a $300 billion economy. So, oh, pocket change, pocket change. <laughs> <laughs> Where we are now in the middle of this pandemic, it, it sort of feels like a tsunami, I was going to say coming towards us, but sort of right here. Um, and I don't have a sense of whether we can actually do anything about it. Like, can we stop it? Do we run for the hills or do we just have to come up with a better surfboard? <laughs> it is pretty crazy times. Uh, and we do have to roll with the punches to some extent. So, for example, the fact that closing our border carves out about 5% of our economy, right. that's very unfortunate and there's absolutely nothing we can do about that in the near term and that's coming. It's a summer story and so we haven't really felt it yet. You know, a lot of tourism businesses are used to a very lean winter in any case and all the Kiwis stuck at home probably actually outnumber the foreigners who couldn't come skiing. So, actually, the last few months, it's, it's actually been quite reasonable right. for tourism. But from October onwards, there are literally hundreds of thousands of tourists every month who aren't arriving. And the fact that Kiwis can't go off overseas is never going to make up for that. And so we haven't really felt the impact of that yet either, but there's not much you can do about it in a hurry. You know, the government's been quite clear from the start that they can't save every firm and every job. The temptation, I suppose, is to try to put the economy into stasis. But, you know, that wage subsidy was enormously expensive. Mm. We actually just have to, at some point, allow the economy to evolve and just try and help people through that as much as we can. Mm. Broad picture, again, I've always loved the idea of hearing talk of the levers of the economy and this sort of evocative image that conjures up of a pilot in, in Wellington sitting there with a bunch of levers in the cockpit. But is it actually like that? And, and if so, what are the levers that can be pulled? Well, monetary policy has, has a lever, but unfortunately it's pretty close to maxed out. Uh, but it's still got some power, as mm. we can see from what's happening to the housing market. Mm. I don't think they're managing to have much impact on business investment, but they wouldn't expect to. In this kind of environment where businesses are, are really scared and with good reason, um, it's it, that's not going to be your main channel through which monetary policy works. But uh, the housing market is a bit different mm. um, and it certainly is is responding. So that that's an important one. But the most important lever at the moment has to be fiscal policy because monetary policy is a very blunt instrument. The official cash rate's practically zero already. They're talking about taking it uh, negative next year. They'll probably knock a little bit more off mortgage rates and the like, but um, but it's it's got to be getting close to its limits. Mm. Fiscal policy, well, it has limits as well, but I think there's probably globally a bit of a trend towards people thinking that maybe those limits are a bit higher than, than they'd thought before. So... Um, you know, in New Zealand, we're forecasting debt, net debt to go to something like 55% of GDP. That's pretty consistent with the Treasury's uh, view that you can go to 60 or so in a crisis as long as you get it back down again because, of course, the Alpine fault could go any day. Yeah. So we do need to have that kind of buffer yeah. for unexpected events going right. forward. Well, just Can you just remind us, what is fiscal policy? So fiscal policy is basically yeah, government's revenue and government spending. So it's tax policy and it's the unemployment benefit and its infrastructure spending and it's all, all that sort of thing. So it's basically right. the government's books and how much they choose to spend and how much they choose to 
to gather through taxes and Mm -hmm. how. How you design your tax system has huge impacts on the economy. People are very, very good at responding to the incentives they face. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we don't want to push you into talking politics in the sense of which party is offering a better plan, but we're wondering if you can give us a sense of are there actually big differences in what's on offer in this election in terms of the economy? Well, what's quite interesting is that there's actually um, not a huge amount of debate about um, whether it's okay for government debt to go to the levels that Treasury is currently projecting, which Mm. is about 55% of GDP. Uh, Everyone seems to be on the same page that that's about the right number. The debate is just about how we get it back down again after that. But in some other countries, there is massive debate. Should that number be much, much bigger? Is it already far, far too big? Should we be already pulling back spending plans or should we be just going going nuts with um, with much more spending? That we haven't really had that debate in, in New Zealand. And I think perhaps that reflects largely that we're still in the phony war stage of the economy. No one's reflect this is suggesting we didn't need the wage subsidy to get us through the lockdown. But the actual main pain of the recession still lies ahead. So maybe that debate will reignite once the unemployment rate actually rises and and you know there's there's more clamour for more government spending. But but for now it's kind of I suppose a bit of wait and see. Sure. Well, there is that metaphor that's sometimes used of a nation's economy, you know, being a bit like a, a household, and that if you're spending more than you earn, the sensible thing is to tighten your belt and cancel the gym membership and stop eating smashed avocados, and wait for things to get on an even keel again. So, I mean, just generally, to what extent is that metaphor appropriate, and to what extent is it rubbish? Well, it's a household with a money printing machine in the basement, which is mm. an interesting angle. Yeah, they've got really good credit worthiness, so um, no no problem to borrow, and they can borrow cheaper than their neighbour can. So in that regard, a respectable government, uh, and not all governments are, of course, it does have options that, that a household doesn't have. But you also have to bear in mind that austerity can become self-defeating. If you look at Greece, for example, when the EU tried to tell them they really, really needed to tighten their belt, they managed to crunch their economy so much that their debt to GDP ratios actually got worse anyway. So, you know, you can get to a point where really it's it's all self-defeating. So you can sort of take the household analogy to to a certain point, but not too far. I mean, governments are unique in their role in the economy and through time, the views on how big they should be as a share of the economy has waxed and waned. And, of course, that is the fundamental difference between the, the political spectrum in New Zealand, at least, where we where we don't tend to define ourselves so much in terms of moral left and right, but more economics. So you mentioned we've got a um, money printing press in the basement. Economics 101, what does it mean when a government starts printing money? How is it done and what does it achieve? Well, that's funny. It's Econ 101, and yet at the moment it's one of the most contentious points in policy making. Hmm. Which you know, you, it used to be simple when there was just paper money. You print more paper money, you will end up with people carting it around in wheelbarrows and being paid twice a day so they can rush out and spend their money before the price of a loaf of bread doubles by that evening. That's you know, that's what happened in the 1920s Weimar Germany uh, when you literally print money. But now, of course, it's not paper money primarily. It's all electronic money and central banks around the world have been printing it like mad for the last 10 years, not here in New Zealand, but in some other places. And inflation has not been the consequence. And so now people are thinking, well, maybe it just doesn't hold anymore. Maybe we can just keep keep on printing and there will never be an inflation problem. Um, so it's 
it's quite an interesting kind of world we find ourselves in. But you can't get around the fact that economic growth in the end comes about from either more people or using up the world's resources more quickly or productivity growth, which is, you know, working smarter. That's it. Mm. The quantity of money cannot actually, in the long run, increase your rate of growth mm. unless it directly impacts one of those three things, which it, it can't really over more than just a very short term. So printing money can certainly um, push consumption and production around through time a little bit. So at the moment, for example, the Reserve Bank is engaged in quantitative easing. That means that they are printing money to buy the bonds that the Treasury is issuing in order to finance all this government spending, particularly the wage subsidy, but all, everything they're spending money on. So um, that is helping to keep the price of bonds up. And the price of bonds and the interest rate on a bond are inversely related. So if they keep demand for bonds up, then that keeps interest rates down. So it's actually, they're not viewing it as, as increasing the quantity of money, although that's what it is also doing as a side effect. They're doing it as a way of helping the government bring about their expansionary fiscal policy without putting any upward pressure on interest rates, because that would be pretty unhelpful at the moment. Mm. You really want monetary and fiscal policy to, to both have their foot on the gas. Mm. And in the long run, as long as the government still pays it back, uh, then it doesn't really matter who's bought it. Right. Hey, finally, Sharon, you used to work in Norway, the central bank there. Have you kept in touch with colleagues over there and how are they doing? Oh, well, Norway's a lovely little country, actually. They have incomes about twice as high as New Zealand. So occasionally they'd, they'd sort of get a little bit smug about the fact that they <laughs> had such lovely quality across their society and that is because they were all willing to pay more tax and if only other countries would do the same, we could all live in this utopia as well because it really is a lovely place to live. But I sort of point out that if we tried to impose their tax rates, we would immediately lose all our highly skilled workers um, because we are in a global uh. market for talent. But if you have double the wage of the globe, you do have nice policy options. Um, but they're, they're, they're doing all right. They've, they found oil, of course, in the 1960s. That's how they got rich. They were actually a very poor country before that. They've done a good job of, of saving all that money, which gives them quite a buffer through the tough times. But um, yeah, right at the moment, COVID's making a bit of a comeback there. So they're pretty concerned about that off, off low levels. But it's very interesting to see a division between Sweden and the rest of Scandinavia because normally they are a pretty solid club. Mm. So to see them diverge so strongly in, in policy is, is very unusual. Very unusual times everywhere. But Sharon Zolnes, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. That was the Tick Tick Podcast. Mōtū wenere, mahuru rua tukau mātoru. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Sharon Zoland, Luke Melpass, Jimmy Lee, Katie Atkin, Jack Price, Catherine George, Patrick Kutzen, John Harderfield, and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, you can do that by going to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back on Rahoroi. Mātou wa.